Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Elmira Bayrosli. The COVID-19 pandemic has upended our lives. Many have lost their jobs. Some have lost much more. As we all try to make sense of our new normal, Opinion Has It will continue to publish on our regular schedule, though our studio is temporarily closed. And as I record this from my apartment in Brooklyn and talk to experts located wherever they may be, thank you for listening and stay safe. A quarter of the world's population is now living under some form of lockdown due to coronavirus. Global markets plunged today. To put it simply, if too many people become seriously unwell at one time, the NHS will be unable to handle it. I want America to understand this week it's going to get bad. Where we are today, you will be in three weeks or four weeks or five weeks or six weeks. We are your future. It has the potential to change life as we know it. COVID-19, more commonly known as the coronavirus, is a respiratory disease that has spread across much of the world. 422 people have now lost their lives. 550 deaths with yesterday marking the deadliest day yet. 743 people have died in the last 24 hours. 2,700 people have now died. COVID-19 has now claimed more than 30,000 lives around the world. On March 11th, the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a pandemic. We're deeply concerned, both by the alarming levels of spread and severity, and by the alarming levels of inaction. Countries worldwide are scrambling to respond and get the pandemic under control. Flights are being grounded, and borders tightened. In the last few hours, Japan has asked for the Olympic Games to be postponed for a year. Schools, sporting events, plays, and concerts are out. Social distancing is in. It all seems so strange, this sudden and indefinite disruption of everything. And yet, as our next guest explains, we've been here before and have much to learn from our own experience. Hello. Hi, Frank. It's Elmira. Oh, yes. Hi. How are you doing? Frank Snowden is the Andrew Downey Oric Professor Emeritus of History and History of Medicine at Yale University. Wonderful. How are things in Italy? He joins us from Rome. I'd say for Italians, it's really a testing time right now. We're very thankful that you could join us to talk about this strange and confusing time. And I thought I would start out by talking about the history of the pandemics. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So often when we think about major pandemics of the past, and we've been hearing a lot about them recently, we've been hearing about the Black Death that raged through Europe and Asia in the 1300s, and of course the 1918 flu has come up quite a bit recently. How did societies respond to both? If you mean uh, during their course, the Black Death had such enormous kill rate And it infected so many people that it really totally devastated uh, societies right away. The economy collapsed. And there were, in the immediate while, there are lots of responses that people had to this cataclysm that was overwhelming them. There were upsurges of religiosity. It's also visible in the arts, in the enormous portrayal of the saints who were thought to intervene to help humanity, like St. Sebastian and St. Roque and the Virgin Mary. Um, In terms of the Spanish influenza, the reaction 
were not as enormous, in part because the plague besieged communities for quite a long period of time. Its symptoms, of course, were dehumanizing and anguishing. Uh, The Spanish influenza was rather different. It's a passage through a community, especially now if we talk about the real killer wave. There were three waves. The real killer wave of the fall of 1918 and the very early uh, winter um, in 1919. That was something that didn't besiege communities for a long period of time. The passage was brief. In the 1918, if you look at major cities, there were some of the measures you see being taken in public health about the coronavirus today. That is to say, masking, there was social distancing, isolation of people with the disease. Partly it was effective, but also psychologically, the sense that you could do something for yourself, that communities could actually take actions that would be helpful and protective. Uh, The longer term impact of the Spanish influenza was, oddly enough, a good deal less than uh, the bubonic plague. And partly the reason for that was the effect of the war and the peace settlement. And that probably in people's minds had a larger sort of presence. So the Spanish influenza is often referred to as the forgotten pandemic. And it's been something that uh, people are only beginning to deal with uh, a century later, oddly enough. You've said that infectious diseases have been no less consequential than wars and economic crises, and you've pointed to cholera and yellow fever in particular. Can you explain? Well, let's deal with the case of yellow fever. The case I'm thinking of was the insurrection of slaves in Haiti. That time it was called Saint-Domingue, and it was a French colony. Slavery was used predominantly for the sugarcane plantations there. The slaves rebelled during the French Revolution, but in 1803, when there was a change of regime in France, Napoleon, a great imperial visionary, had an idea of restoring French power in Haiti. He sent a vast armada, 50,000 soldiers and sailors to Haiti. And uh, what happened was that people of African descent had some immunity to yellow fever, whereas the French troops that were sent had no immunity, no herd immunity at all. And yellow fever totally devastated the French expeditionary force, if we call it that. The general in charge wrote to France saying that he could no longer continue because 80% of his armed forces, his troops and his sailors had died of yellow fever and the other 20% were convalescing and useless for military action. And so in this light of this, the French surrendered and uh, Haiti became the largest slave rebellion in history, and it became the first free, independent black republic in the world. And it had enormous consequences then on the slave trade, and it also redirected French imperial ambitions away from the Americas. And so Napoleon dealt with Thomas Jefferson, and that 
is the reason that we had the Louisiana Purchase in 1803. So we see major geopolitical changes and a major revolution and a major impact on a war between the slaves and the French army being determined by the passage of yellow fever. We're hearing a lot of experts call the current coronavirus, the biggest public health threat since the 1918 flu epidemic. But when I take a look, obviously, a lot has changed since then. Medicine, for one, has greatly advanced. But the global population has also quadrupled, and domestic and international mobility has reached once unimaginable levels. What are some of the challenges we're facing with COVID-19 in this new environment? People create societies that are vulnerable in very particular ways so that the diseases that they face change depending on the nature of society. And so you're right, a lot has changed and we're having to cope with the fact that we haven't prepared in order to deal with it. Science has advanced very much, but human beings have not taken care to prepare themselves to apply science in a sustained and ongoing way. And so our lack of preparedness is something that the coronavirus is revealing very, very dramatically. Hi, everybody. It's Danny DeVito. And I'm asking you from the bottom of my heart, stay home. Hello, this is Robert De Niro. We all need to stay home. So important. Social distancing, such an important phrase. You must Stay at home. I'm watching you. Social distancing has been shown to help mitigate the spread of disease and conserve health systems. But all of that puts serious strain on our economies. Can history show us how to balance the two? Ah, that's a a really difficult one. I would say that in the Spanish influenza, the social distancing was a strategy. But as I was saying, uh, one of the features of that was that it didn't last very long in any long community. So what's different about the coronavirus? The coronavirus is laying siege to communities for what looks as though it will be a very long, prolonged period. And so we're facing something new. We have an enormous strain on our resources, and we're going to have to be learning how to cope with this long lockdown. It will be very interesting and very important to see how we devise ways of uh, dealing with this economically, financially, culturally, and psychologically. Uh, There isn't a quick and easy answer to that, alas. It's one of the great questions uh, that's facing us. You've said that disease does not affect societies in random or chaotic ways, but rather are ordered events, and that it highlights how we structure our lives and care for people. Disease, you say, has a way of finding our social and political fault lines and exacerbating them. Can you give us some examples? We were just talking uh, about the coronavirus, and it seems it's uh, breaking out in ways that expose the vulnerabilities of people without a way to leave work, without being financially devastated. And so they tend not to visit doctors, and that will be an enormous impact in the whole course of this disease or the large numbers of homeless people who are likely to be ravaged by the course of this disease, large numbers of people who don't have health insurance, 
all of these people don't have the capacity to comply with what the Surgeon General says people should do. Social distancing, don't go to work, wash your hands. It's very difficult to wash your hands if you're homeless. It's also very difficult to take uh, off work voluntarily if you don't have any way of paying your rent if you do so. And so that is this disease will move along these fault lines of inequality, of lack of care in our health system and the very fragmented nature of our healthcare system. Those are examples of the way that this is not uh, a random occurrence. I don't mean that it's going to take an orderly pathway through our society. A lot will depend on contingency and each place will be different, but some of the drivers of the pandemic will be its capacity to find and exploit our weaknesses and vulnerabilities of the type I was just saying. We'll be right back. regular listener to Opinion Has It, you may find yourself asking, how can you help support the work we do here on the podcast? Honestly, the best way is to become a subscriber at Project Syndicate. And now we're offering our listeners 50% off a new subscription. That means for less than $1 a week, you can help us continue to interview the experts and join a community that's committed to a crucial public good, a truly open world of ideas. Use the discount code PODCAST2020, that's podcast 2020, all one word, when you subscribe on project-syndicate.org. The Trump administration and the CDC has been heavily criticized for its slow response to the virus. In Early March, President Trump was quick to call COVID-19 a quote-unquote foreign virus and has since taken to calling it the Chinese virus. I have to call it where it came from. It did come from China. So I think it's a very accurate term. What are the repercussions of equating the coronavirus with a foreign invader? This is a very serious issue, and I think we need to take it in the light of its real impact. The Dr. Tedros and the World Health Organization set up a means of naming the coronavirus in a scientific way. A panelist of scientists was appointed. They took 10 days. Think of a name that would avoid all stigma of animals, of people, of geographical areas, of uh, professions, uh, because those stigmas are drivers of disease and they direct resources away from science. And so when people in the United States, predominantly conservatives as it is, their choice, their insistence on not using COVID-19, but calling it the Wuhan virus or the Chinese virus, that is a number of really deadly things, uh, consequences that can ensue. This is something that characterizes the Trump government's response uh, to many things like climate crisis, which is the rejection of science. COVID-19 was a carefully chosen scientific term that uh, people on the right of the political spectrum in the United States are refusing to recognize and instead call it something else 
that's not scientific, and that helps to turn our response away from scientific public health and in a direction of solutions that simply don't work. You can't stop microbes with walls and barriers. You're currently in Rome. Italy is one of the main COVID-19 hotspots, and we've talked about how it's currently under lockdown to help slow the spread of the virus. Other countries have followed suit. What should we bear in mind to help us get through the next few months? I think we need to bear in mind not to create illusions. I think it's very harmful to give people false hopes because they'll be disillusioned and then people won't believe anything that anyone says and there'll be mass defiance of the provisions that are necessary. So the first thing is the messaging by the media and the government needs not to say uh, that this will just be like a cold or seasonal influenza or it will disappear with the coming of spring. This doesn't seem to be any of those things. It's much more serious than that. And so first thing is realistic expectations for the people to explain to people why this is serious, why their cooperation is not just an exertion of state power, but is essential. We're all in this and we won't all survive together unless we pull together. This is responsibility that everyone as a citizen very much needs to have. And one can see that this is part of the compliance that I've been observing here in Rome. The local newspaper, Messaggero, said something miraculous had happened. For the first time, people in Rome are being obedient. I think that would be one of the first important messages, uh, which is that this is going to be a prolonged and difficult siege, but it's a vital one. People need to be told the truth and need to be told. I think it's therapeutic to know that people can do things to help themselves, and those things need to be explained to them scientifically and carefully and truthfully. Frank, thank you. Well, thank you. I've really enjoyed um, our conversation. Thank you for inviting me. That was Frank Snowden. He's Professor Emeritus of History and History of Medicine at Yale University. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrosley. Opinion Has It is produced and edited by Kasha Brasalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Jonathan Stein and Rachel Dunna. 